Hey listeners, Nathan here. Just wanted to let you know to listen through the credits for a very special announcement. And now, on with the show. Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 13, The Three Treasures Mini-Analysis. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the cultured curator of the vault, Nathan Marjan. Our previous episode with Daniel DeManna on Peter Jackson's King Kong was our longest yet at two hours and 40 minutes. It truly was an epic episode for an epic film. Despite the length, though, I've gotten lots of positive feedback on it. Maybe it was because with the hashtag coronapocalypse going on, kaiju fans needed a long podcast to listen to while in self-quarantine. I disagree, Jimmy. It's not too soon. Ah, heck, listeners, MIFV's unintentional theme of three-hour films this month seems perfect for this pandemic panic. Watch these long films and then listen to our almost-as-long episodes on them. Although, I'm going to challenge myself to not be nearly as long in today's episode, mostly because Brian Scherchel and Daniel DeManna, there's another unintentional theme for you, covered it in an epic Kaiju Vision Radio episode. See the link in the show notes. This mini-sode is meant to supplement that discussion. So give the KVR episode a listen. The film in question is 1959's The Three Treasures, or as it was called in Japan, Nippon Tanjo, which translates as The Birth of Japan. It was a religious epic in the vein of Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments from 1956. It was Toho's 1,000th film and their most profitable movie of that year. It's no wonder because this is a tour de force on every level. Special effects by Eiji Tsuburaya, music by Akira Fukube, and pretty much the studio's entire stable of star actors. Takashi Shimura, Akihiko Harada, Kumi Mizuno, Akira Kubo, Akira Takarada, Jun Tazaki, Hideo Amamoto, and of course, the great Toshiro Mifune. By the way, while Monster Island's chaplain Reverend Mufune isn't related to him, he does tell me that Mufune-san is his favorite actor and, believe it or not, was a fellow Christian. It adds some irony to him starring in a film that dramatizes the beginnings of Shinto. Now, the film was directed by Hiroshi Inagaki and not Oshiro Honda or Akira Kurosawa, which is interesting. Inagaki is best known for his samurai trilogy from the mid-1950s. In his video review of the film, Adam Noyes went so far as to call him, quote-unquote, the David Lean of Japan. Lean directed epics like Bridge Over the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia. So, in actuality, Inagaki was perfect for this film. Pardon my intrepid producer, listeners. He gets a little excited about Bridge Over River Kwai because Alec Guinness, the original Obi-Wan Kenobi actor, was in it. Anyway... The Three Treasures tells the epic tale of Yamato Takeru, a mythic Japanese folk hero. He is the son of Emperor Keiko and has a long series of adventures and hardships that are paralleled by vignettes of various stories from Japanese mythology. It ends with the prince declaring that he will build a country based on trust and other ideals before dying heroically in battle. 
His soul rises from his body in the form of a great white bird, which causes Mount Fuji to erupt and destroy his enemies, and then flies to heaven as the Yamato people chase after him. I should note that this film was very loosely remade in 1994 as Yamato Takeru, aka Orochi the Eight-Headed Dragon, which I confess I have yet to see. There's a lot that could be said about this film, with the most notable aspect being the depiction of the Shinto religion in it, which is why I recommend you listen to the KVR episode. Since I'm planning to cover different aspects of Shinto over the course of several future episodes, I'll be focusing on some of the film's mythic elements and how it interprets and or changes them. Despite being released in a severely truncated but subtitled form in the US in 1960, The Three Treasures has yet to be released on home media there. I was lucky enough to get a copy for The Vault. I'm no expert on Japanese mythology, so I won't be surprised if any Japanese listeners write in to tell me what I got wrong. And please let me know if I did. The source material for the film is the Kojiki and Nihon Shoki. These are the oldest examples of Japanese literature. The former is a collection of myths and folktales compiled in 712 AD that were later appropriated by Shinto, and the latter is a chronicle of early Japanese history written in 720 AD, though it does include myths. Before I continue, I'd like to address a few criticisms I've heard of this film from some YouTube reviews. One is that the film is too long and the mythology vignettes don't add anything to the story. I disagree. They're meant to parallel the tale of Yamato Takeru, who himself is something of a mythic hero. They provide background and history. Removing them would remove the context and the significance of the prince's story. Not only that, these tales are the backbone of Japanese culture and identity. The Japanese title was The Birth of Japan, after all. Another criticism is that it's boring. Maybe I just have more patience than some cinephiles, but I was riveted watching this. But Japan and its culture fascinate me. I mean, I live and work on Ogasawara, so it was easy for me to get sucked in, which is more than I can say for my intrepid producer. (laughs) Falling asleep once is one time too many. (sighs) Moving on. Let me touch on the Japanese creation myth, which Tsuburaya depicts marvelously in the film. As Brian said on KVR, the Japanese creation myth is very Japan-centric in that it only refers to the creation of Japan and not the rest of the world. It begins with the universe in a chaotic and formless void, not unlike the Erebus of Greek mythology and how, quote, the earth was formless and void, end quote, according to Genesis 1-2 in the Bible. From this, the heavens were formed, and two groups of primordial gods, the Kotomatsukami and the Kamiyo-Nanayo, or seven divine generations, spontaneously appeared. What we see in the film is the kuniumi, literally birth or formation of the country, which came later. It was done by the youngest pair of primordial gods, Izanagi and Izanami. In some ways, especially in the film, they could almost be seen as Adam and Eve figures, except they themselves formed the Japan archipelago using a spear called Amano Nuboko. They did this standing on the Ameno Ukihashi, or floating bridge of heaven, which I think was the Bifrost-like rainbow bridge in the film. The two of them then agree to procreate to produce more lands, and this part of the story is depicted in the film up to the moment they consummate. It's when they go to Earth and then circle around the land's central support column, the Amino Mihashira, or heavenly pillar. What isn't shown in the film is the Kamiumi, which was the birth of the Japanese pantheon of gods that occurred afterward. 
And let me tell you, that reaches Greek levels of weirdness and coolness at points. For the sake of time, I'll leave a link to the Wikipedia article about it for you to read. Next, the film's English title refers to the Imperial Regalia of Japan. These are the Kusanagi no Surugi sword, which Yamato Takeru receives from his aunt in the film, the Yato no Kagami mirror, and the jewel Yasakani no Makatama, which is a comma-shaped bead. The last two were seen in the vignette about Amaterasu, the sun goddess. These treasures represent valor, wisdom, and benevolence, respectively. Think of them as the Japanese equivalent of Britain's crown jewels. According to legend, these were brought to Earth by Ninigi no Mikoto, the mythic grandson of Amaterasu and the great-grandfather of the first Japanese emperor, Jimu. They symbolize the emperor's divinity and lineage to the sun goddess, thereby confirming his legitimacy as Japan's ruler. Strangely, though, the regalia were nearly lost when the grandmother of child emperor Antoku threw herself into the Kanmon Straits during a naval battle in 1185 during the Genpei War. The mirror and the jewel were recovered, although there's a story that claims the soldier who tried to force open the box containing the mirror was struck blind, but it's debated if the sword was found. Some say it was lost and replaced with a replica, while others say the one that was lost was a replica. Maybe it was claimed by the Lady of the Lake? We haven't gotten to the Arthurian part yet, Jimmy. Anyway, the regalia's locations aren't confirmed due to their legendary status, but it's believed the sword is kept at the Atsuta Shrine in Nagoya, the jewel at the three palace sanctuaries in Kokyo, the Imperial Palace in Tokyo, and the mirror at the Ise Grand Shrine in Mie Prefecture. They're presented to the new emperor to this day as part of the private enthronement ceremony. Only he and certain priests are allowed to see them. I know because I came to Monster Island shortly after Emperor Naruhito was enthroned May 1st, 2019, and my Japanese co-workers were all talking about it. While I compared these to the crown jewels, that would be like if one of them was Excalibur. The Kusanagi sword, as seen in the film, is said to have been taken out of the tale of Yamato no Orochi, the eight-headed and eight-tailed dragon by Amaterasu's brother, Suzanu. These names may sound familiar because they're all over Japanese pop culture. I myself first heard them thanks to the video game series, The King of Fighters, which has a pair of rival characters named Kyo Kusanagi and Iyori Yagami, the latter being a member of a race called the Orochi. Really, Jimmy? You think you could beat me at those games? Challenge accepted! Now, Speaking of Orochi, that vignette is what gets many kaiju fans interested in seeing this film. The Orochi myth is clearly the inspiration for King Ghidorah, and Tsuburaya's effects here, while primitive by comparison, became the prototype for the three-headed space dragon five years later. The story is a classic mythological motif of a hero slaying a dragon to save a maiden. Orochi is essentially a Japanese equivalent to the Hydra of Greek mythology. Near as I can tell, the film depicts the story quite accurately. Suzanu the Storm God grew restless, threw a horse into Amaterasu's loom, and destroyed her rice fields. This drove her to seclude herself in a cave. Suzanu was punished with banishment to Earth. There he came to the head of the He River in Izumo province and met an old couple and their youngest daughter. There's a detail here that confuses me a little. Wikipedia claims these people are Earth deities, based on the translation of the word kunitsukami, 
However, the translations I read of the Kojiki passage don't say this, nor do a few other sources I looked at. The film doesn't present them as deities either. Regardless, they tell Suzanu that the dragon would come down from the mountain every year for seven years, and they would have to sacrifice one of their daughters to it every time. Their last daughter, Kushinata Hime, was next. Remember Iori from King of Fighters? One of his super moves is affectionately called the Maiden Masher, and it hits eight times. Hmm. Anyway, Suzanu agrees to slay the dragon if he can have their daughter in marriage. The story plays out like in the film, with Suzanu getting the dragon drunk on sake, although it seems the dragon was too inebriated to fight back in the original story. You got Orochi drunk once? That hangover must have been a monster. Yeah, not my best joke. As I was saying, a detail the film doesn't mention is Kushinata Hime was made into the goddess of rice after marrying Suzanu. There's something you don't see in a lot of mythologies, attaining godhood through marriage. I feel sorry for unmarried mortals. Insert sarcasm sign here. Also, the sake Suzanu gave Orochi was a special variety called Yashiori no Sake. If that sounds familiar, it's because it was part of the inspiration for the name of Operation Yashiori in Shin Godzilla, which involved pumping blood coagulant into Godzilla's mouth. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the hero of the film, Yamato Takeru himself. Interestingly, much like the Ten Commandments did with Moses, this film takes more liberties with his story than any of the myths. Yamato Takeru, or Prince Osu, is, as I hinted before, an Arthurian figure in Japanese folklore. Think about it. He's a hero granted a mystical sword by a feminine figure, and he then uses it to perform great deeds. While he's considered to be a legend, he's studied in Japan as if he was a historical figure. Again, not unlike Arthur. In fact, there are several statues of Yamato Takeru in Japan, including at Tenroku-en, Otori Taisha, and Nihon Daira, Shizuoku City. Ivan Morris described him as, quote, the archetype of Japan's long line of poignant, lonely heroes, end quote. According to the Kojiki and Nihon Shoki, he was the son of Emperor Keiko, the 12th Emperor of Japan, and the father of Emperor Chuai, the 14th Emperor of Japan. <laughs> I bet the prince has trishkaidekaphobia thanks to his life of hardship. Look it up. The name given him by Kumaso, depending on the translation, means either the strongest man in our country or the brave of Yamato. I see how those could overlap. The key difference between the film and the legends, near as I can tell, is the three treasures romanticizes him. In the legends, he has a lot of hubris, as in tragic flaws. For one thing, he did kill his older brother, although one of my sources says it was an accident, which is why his father sent him on suicide missions, unlike in the film where he was framed for killing his brother. However, there's a discrepancy there too, since the Kujiki says his father feared him, while the Nihon Shoki says they had a good relationship. Regardless, his hubris comes to a head with his death, which is very different than the film. He didn't die heroically in battle, but due to a god's curse and his own arrogance. He went to Mount Ibuki to defeat its god, who took the form of a wild boar, which was seen in the film, but Takeru was defeated. My sources differ on the details, but it sounds like the god sent an icy wind that made Takeru sick until he died in Issei province. Legend has it that the Mie prefecture's name was derived from his final words. He was only 30. Interestingly, his father built the Mausoleum of the White Plover for him, 
and when Takeru's coffin was laid in it, a great white bird emerged from the mausoleum. The coffin was opened, but it was empty. This was in the film, but the circumstances were quite different, as I mentioned. I'm not surprised this was done. The filmmakers wanted to show Yamato Takeru as an overcomer since, as Adam Noyes says, the Japanese believe people grow through hardship. Like King Arthur, Yamato Takeru in many ways symbolizes his nation. This film was made at a time when Japan was coming out of a long period of adversity. The war, the atomic bombings, the occupation. They were on the cusp of newfound prosperity, but the memories of the previous 20 years were still fresh. They saw themselves as victimized, but not as victims. I was just about to explain, Jimmy. Unlike you with your convoluted past. Not the same in the least? Hmm. I'll give you that. Anyway, the Japanese people have been hurt in their recent history. Their country was devastated. Their culture wounded physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. But now they were reaching the light at the end of the tunnel, having grown from their long journey in the darkness. The Japanese economic miracle would take full effect within a year or two, and by the end of the 1960s, Japan would be one of the biggest economies in the world. The Yamato Takeru of legend, while a hero, was undone by his own folly. There were those in Japan who didn't want to look back at the end of the war and say it was their fault. I fully acknowledge the end of World War II is very complicated and nuanced, especially when it comes to Japan. I'm not passing judgment or revising history. What I'm saying is Japanese audiences wanted a film that reminded them of their rich national heritage, and that included a hero who fought his way through every obstacle thrown at him. Yamato Takeru was the hero the Japanese national spirit needed at that moment. Man, I should do a follow-up episode to this with Reverend Mifune. Or better yet, the guys at the Kaiju Apostle. I'm a Christian, so I can see a lot of interesting theological discussions coming out of this, even though it's about Shinto. This is such a rich film. Track it down and watch it. You'll thank me later. All right, we'll get to some listener feedback, but first, after these messages, we'll be right back. Batman! Holy lizards, Batman! Can you imagine the Cape Crusader facing off against the King of the Monsters in 1960s Tokyo? Read the fan comic that resurrects this long-lost Toho project with Technicolor action. Pow! Zap! Bam! Only at BatmanMeetsGodzilla.com And we're back. Once again, we're doing a Batman Meets Godzilla t-shirt giveaway. Just share this episode on social media to be entered. Get all the details in the show notes. Speaking of that project, our first bit of feedback is a fact check of a fact check. It is your job, Jimmy, but it seems you're losing your touch. As I was saying, I mentioned in last month's episode that listener Kyoe Toshi messaged me and said the Sekizawa treatment for Batman meets Godzilla was something of an urban legend. This sparked a short debate, shall we say, between her and the team at BMG on Twitter. Here's how it went. BMG says, 
Hate to fact check your fact check, but according to Toho Unpublished Works, Sekizawa did write a treatment for Batman Meets Godzilla in 1965. Only a few pages have been seen. Obviously, we're using the Dozer treatment as the springboard for our webcomic, coming out this Friday. And then Kyoe Toshi added, Toho Unpublished Works was one of those sources I mentioned that was written decades after the fact. A lot of the information in that publication is considered unsourced and unreliable. The pages have never been seen by anyone as far as I know. I'd like to see them myself. And then she added, I did see the pages in a fanzine once, but they were a fandom recreation slash forgery, much like the story of a diary version of Destroy All Monsters was based on a fan fiction script in a book about the history of Gamera. And then she finished by saying, but anyway, you look at it, I can't wait to see the comic. It looks like a lot of fun. So thankfully, this didn't break out into a flame war, unlike what's going on between Jimmy and John LeMay. You do realize this is the weirdest flame war ever, right? Because you're only on Twitter and John's not on Twitter. Just saying, man. Just saying. Next, we have a few more reviews on Apple Podcasts. A quick reminder. I have an ongoing giveaway for anyone who writes a review of the show. They'll receive a copy of my kaiju novella, Destroyer, which I co-wrote with Natasha Hayden, Timothy Deal, and Nick Hayden. You've heard Nick and Tim on this show. I have several I need to mail out, but I'm trying to get signatures from all the authors. Please be patient. So, here are the new reviews. From Mega Philip with the title, Fun Show. If you're a kaiju fan looking for a fun podcast, check this out. Short and to the point. I love it. Thanks, man. This one is the more interesting of the two. I mentioned in a previous episode that I found the same review written under two different screen names. So what I assumed was that the reviewer loved the show so much, he just left a five-star review with both of his accounts. He has since gone and edited the second one into a brand new review under the name Yojimbo65. It has the title, Second Review, Kid-Friendly Kaiju, and it reads, I've already extolled the virtues of listening to Nathan, Jimmy, and friends. They provide a smart, funny, informative show. However, as a kaiju dad with two young daughters who need lots of shuttling to and from activities, I discovered another bonus to listening to the podcast. I'm not sure why, but during episode 10, John LeMay versus King Kong 76, I'm going to inject myself here. You're actually thinking of the King Kong Lives episode because I, I know what you're referring to and that's when I brought that up, but it did refer back to King Kong 76. Anyway, he says... I realized the Monster Island Film Vault is one of the very few I can listen to with the girls without fear of a random F-bomb or curse word. My little Shobajin are starting to share my love of kaiju. They play with my figures. We watch the films together. It is very refreshing to be able to have a podcast I can share with them. So, I have to add, quote-unquote, family-friendly to the list of superlatives. Keep up the excellent work. Thank you so much, sir. I've chatted with this guy a few times over messaging on the podcast social medias, and he has reiterated this to me. And I just want to say that one of the things I do want to do with this podcast is I do want to keep it family-friendly. I want it to be accessible to everybody. I want it to be something that parents can listen to with their kids. We're not going to swear on this show. 
we're going to talk about things that might be a little bit difficult to talk to, so you may have to shield them from that. But regardless, this is a show for everybody. And honestly, unless you're a parent like this guy is, I don't think most people are going to notice that we don't cuss like sailors on here. Unlike Godzilla, which is interesting because the Shobajin still remind us here on the island on occasion that Godzilla apparently cusses like a sailor. Does that surprise anybody? I'm going to say no. But I may have to tell Jimmy to keep some of those Orca translations off the show, let me tell you. But that would necessitate that he actually gets the dang thing fixed anytime soon. Yeah, yeah, I know. The parts are on back order until November. <sighs> Whatever. Want to contribute to the discussions on the minisodes? Send us an email or a message on any of our social networks. I'd love to hear what you thought of The Three Treasures or any of the films we've covered on here, whether you agree or disagree with us. In our next episode, The Conquest continues as we venture for the first time into the MonsterVerse with 2017's Kong Skull Island. I'll be joined by none other than Geek Devotion's Dallas Mora to discuss this important expansion on the only other remotely successful cinematic universe out there. Assuming Jimmy doesn't do something goofy like fly him here on a robot pterodactyl. It was a pteranodon? Okay, man. Whatever you say. For April's minisode, I'm breaking the mold again. You've heard his feedback on the show. Now listen to him live. I'll be joined by Luke Giaconetti of the Earth Destruction Directive podcast to discuss the film Ishiro Honda and everyone else was making while The Three Treasures was in production. Battle in Outer Space. Yes, Jimmy, the second entry in the pseudo-trilogy. <sighs> All right, time to get to work. Cue credits. Stop doing the Shay dance and hit the button, Jimmy. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter, where our handle is TheMonsterIsla1. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus, and The Open Way, Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. It can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcatchers. Please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas media production. Sayonara! What's wrong, Jimmy?
You've got the madness? You've got cabin fever! Join the club. Better that than coronavirus. But never fear, kaiju lovers. Your favorite podcasters are here. You don't have to face these trying times alone. You're invited to Kaiju Quarantine. This mega monster movie marathon will feature informative and riftastic commentary from the crews of your favorite giant monster podcasts, including Kaiju Weekly, Kaiju Conversation, Gargantu Cast, Monsters vs. Men, Tokyo Lives, Kaiju Transmissions, and of course, the Monster Island Film Vault. We'll watch kaiju classics old and new like The Black Scorpion, Godzilla vs. Gigan, and Rago, King of the Sea Monsters, until our epic climax with Godzilla Final Wars. So join us on Discord April 4th and 5th at 2 p.m. Central Standard Time for the event of the spring. You're gonna try to cameo? Oh boy. Once again, that's April 4th and 5th at 2 p.m. Central.